Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason. My name is Lori Atkins. I'm filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings today. I also want to make sure that you know about our Power of Love training and equipping course. This is coming up January 17 through 19 next year, 2020. And it's taking place at the Delta Hotel Marriott in Allen, Texas, just outside of Dallas. The curriculum that Dr. Jennings has put together is really so far beyond. It's on another level. So we're talking about three power-packed days that feature multimedia presentations, then breakout sessions, practical application of what we've learned, maybe even some role-playing as we go through answering tough questions and objections and how to really put carrying this message forward into practice. And there's also a chance to fellowship with other Come and Reason members from literally across the world. You can find more information on our website. If you go to events.comeandreason.com, you can see the detailed itinerary and schedule. You can see the titles of all the presentations. There's a list of objectives that we hope to accomplish over the weekend. And there's even a whole list of FAQs or frequently asked questions. You can also go ahead and register right now. There is a super early bird reservations open right now it's only $59 for all three days all presentation materials you get some free books and meals included 59 bucks so we have opened up the super early bird reservations we're offering a hundred early bird spots and in the first week those have been open over half of those are gone so we've already had over 50 people register for the super early bird reservation so Get online ASAP if you want to come. Okay, let's bow our heads and we'll start class with prayer. Father, we ask for your presence here in our class today. We ask for the Holy Spirit. Just impart to us your knowledge, your wisdom. Help us learn more about you. Open doors, close doors uh, for this message to go forward as as you're, you see fit so that we can see you soon is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are studying Lesson 8 in our quarterly called Family Seasons. The title of this week's lesson is The Season of Parenting. So how many parents do we have here in class this morning? Tons. And I know we've got some grandparents here too, because I know we've got some visitors here visiting grandbabies. So I know... That there's really nothing you parents love more than getting advice and guidance from somebody who's not a parent, right? (laughs) Isn't that just the best? Well, I'm not one, so please know that I am super sensitive to that fact, and I'm going to be deferring frequently to all you parents out there for the real, real scoop, okay? So in Bible times and historically, babies and children have been kind of a big thing. They were a big deal. They were associated with wealth and power, royalty, aristocracy, and they even were associated with being blessed or cursed by God. Many of these biblical women pled. I mean, they poured out their hearts to God begging for a child. You remember some of them, right? You remember Hannah weeping at the temple? Or Rachel thinking that death was a preferred alternative to barrenness? 
We talked a little bit about some of these miracle birth stories last week and about how the stories chosen to be recorded in the Bible. You ever wondered how that happened? We're talking about a gazillion potential historical accounts, but there are only a certain number chosen to be recorded in the Bible and how those stories not only serve as a historical record, but they can also serve to reveal a larger reality or object lessons. There are seven of these examples. Interesting that there are seven. We know the meaning of that number. Seven examples of barren women who were healed and gave birth, and each one of those children are all types of Christ. Again, we talked about this last week. So I had already prepared some of my lesson before. Tim spoke on unity in the family last week. He stole some of my stuff, but he also gave me some additional material. So some of this might be a review. So these are real people, real historical accounts, but their stories serve as object lessons pointing to Christ. So we had Sarah, who prayed for 90, 100 years. Let that sink in. For a child, finally was blessed with Isaac, who was then brought up to Mount Moriah and asked to be sacrificed, symbolic of Christ, who would be sacrificed. Then we have Rebecca, who was barren, prayed and prayed. She had Jacob, who became Israel, the father of the nation built upon 12 sons. And, of course, Jesus then became the cornerstone of the church, built upon 12 apostles. We had Rachel, who prayed and prayed and eventually had Joseph, who was sold into slavery, then became ruler to free the people. Jesus went into the slavery of sin in order to free us from it. We had Manoah's wife prayed, and she was blessed with Samson. He was given strength to deliver Israel from bondage of oppressors and then rule over them. And Jesus, of course, has the strength to deliver us from sin and eventually rule the universe. Hannah, as we talked about, prayed on the steps of the temple. She was given Samuel, who became the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. We had the Shunammite woman. The child died, was resurrected by Elijah in three days, and of course Jesus died, rose again in three days. And then Elizabeth, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets, and Jesus, of course, was the greatest of all the prophets. So in each one of these situations, did God miraculously get these barren women pregnant? Was that the miracle? No. No. The miracle he performed was one of physical healing, just like healing blindness, healing deafness, which he did while he was on this earth. But in these cases, God healed or restored their reproductive abilities. He healed whatever was inhibiting their fertility. The women still had natural relations with their husbands, and that got them pregnant. God did not get them pregnant. But Mary, of course, was different. How do you know we move on with that? <laughs> it wasn't a rhetorical question. No, exactly. Simple yes or no. <laughs> Mary was different. In her case, no miracle was performed to heal a physical malady that prevented her from conceiving. In her case, God did instill a pregnancy in her, a true miracle birth. Now think about this. Do you find it odd that God chose Abraham to be the family through whom the Messiah would come, 
And the first three generations, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, are all barren and all require a miracle healing in order to conceive. What are the odds of that? Is that random chance? They were related. Let's put one thing in there. Absolutely. They were cousins. They yes. Half siblings, you know, and so there could be some issue related to that medically. No doubt. And there is, we're going to talk about that. There is some genetic and intergenerational issues. So that's definitely a possibility. But what else is going on in this whole play? The scene that's being acted out, this theater to, and spectacle to angels and men. Is there a great controversy going on? And remember how we've talked about, if you think about it, the flood. Satan did not really have to target his attacks. He was attacking the entire world to the point where he got it down to only one person, one heart still left open through whom the avenue of the Messiah could come. But when Jacob was chosen and Israel was highlighted as the line, the lineage through whom the Messiah was, could come, he could target his attacks. He didn't have to spread them. And I'm not saying that he left everybody else alone. Don't get me wrong. But his goal was to keep the avenue for the Messiah closed. And he felt, I'm sure he felt like if tampering with reproductive abilities could get that done. I don't know. We don't have any inspired word that that's what happened. But it does make you wonder. Yes, Dr. Moses. The wives, the mothers that you're describing, each one was chosen in a near miraculous way. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just sporadic or random that these women were chosen. Exactly. How was Sarah chosen in a miraculous way? I mean, I'll agree with you, the last two. But as, as a Abraham's wife, I'm not sure I'm following. Well, I, I see her as being a half-sister, and then, so why was she chosen? She was one of the very few. That would be probably wide selection in... in or whatever that mm -hmm. place was, that truly loved God. Right. You know. And I, I think, I, I understand what you're saying. And it was, it was the mothers that were chosen, because in many of these situations, there were other options. Many of these men had multiple wives. You know what I mean? So. And Sarah's handmaid. Correct. Well, and Abraham obviously was fertile. I mean, he had multiple children after Sarah died. Right. It was 70? Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 70 sons or 70 children? I don't remember that. He had a boatload of kids after Sarah passed away. Either way. <laughs> Pretty impressive. <laughs> so, reiterating, biblically and historically, babies and children, super important. So what about now? What do you think in this country? you think it's the same? Sadly, no. Seems like not nearly as much. So I delved into some statistics. 
looked at a 2018 study from the CDC, and it shows that the birth rate fell for nearly every group of women of reproductive age in the United States in 2017, reflecting a sharp drop that saw the fewest newborns since 1987. The general fertility rank sank to a record low of 60.2 births per 1,000 women of childbearing age. And that's a 3% drop from 2016, the year before. It's not just the U.S., it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. UK, Western Europe, Japan, you name it. Birth rates are plummeting. And the results put the U.S. further away from a viable replacement rate, which is the standard for a generation being able to replicate its numbers. Women between the ages of 40 and 44 were the only age group to see a higher birth rate in 2017, up 2% from 2016. And indeed, more and more women are choosing to delay marriage and children, which is one of the reasons for that rise in that 40 to 44 age group. But according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average age for a woman's first marriage is now over 27, and it's the highest it's been since the agency began keeping track. A 2018 poll from Morning Consult and the New York Times found that most Americans planned to have fewer children than their parents did. Almost a quarter of those respondents without kids said they didn't want any, and another 34% still weren't sure. So what are some of the factors that might be contributing to these changing trends? Finances. Economic concerns is the number one. It is. Selfishness. Right. Yes. All about me. Our young people. Yeah. And what about that, parents? What is what does parenting do to selfishness? exactly I don't think we're going to talk about that I don't think there's any bigger lesson for us I think it's one of the reasons children were part of the plan I think another reason is just the way way the world is right now too people don't want to bring a child into this world the way it is exactly not just economics It's it's a traumatic place Lord, yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. So we said economic concerns. Uh, there's just a selfishness. There's a general all about me, and kids are not all about me. It's all about them. Um, and just the a lot of people don't want to bring a child into this world, not just for economic reasons. It's a traumatic, ugly place, and getting uglier. Yes, Wendell. There was a comment made that um, childbearing has something to do with self- that it affects ch- selfishness. I have not observed that. Um, I think people can become more selfish as they have children, mm-hmm. or less selfish. It depends on what you're allowing yourself to be influenced by. Yes. So am I, I, mean, I, I work in a children's environment, and I see some of the selfish parents, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. The epitome. Sadly, it's true. I want to submit another reason. Yes. The masculinization of women and the feminization of men. When, There's no doubt. When you have two groups that are supposed to 
attract and, and complement one another, and they both become like one another, then the normal dynamics of a, um, call the sexual marketplace, are disrupted, and not disrupted for the better. Both men and women are choosing not to get married. Both men and women are choosing not to have children because they, they don't find as many of the opposite sex attractive. That, that, this, is a, this is a problem that doesn't like to get talked about at all. Well, then, too, the increase of the LGBT community, uh, you know, you start thinking about Satan's intention when he is promoting this to the point, what would this do to society? You know, yeah. of course, some of them do adopt and, and that kind of thing, but um, or have surrogates and whatever, but it's a very, very self-centered relationship, um, very destructive, and that definitely um, does have an effect on population, reproduction. And when states get involved, like our dear friends of the North in Canada, you can have a situation where five, five individuals can have full parental rights. You can have a homosexual couple, a surrogate, and the sperm donor and egg donor, all having equal parental rights because the state's involved. As, as individuals choose to choose education or whatever, lifestyle or whatever, and they delay onset of, of child-rearing, uh, there's a natural decrease in fertility. That's right. That's my next bullet point. Increase Male and female, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in Sunday's lesson, both from increasing age as well as genetic entropy uh, and some of our environmental factors and lifestyle factors. We're not doing anything really to help <laughs> increase fertility and health and well-being of our offspring, sadly. So why do we think that children were part of God's original plan, God's original family plan? Was there a purpose for the establishment of the human family? It was a demonstration. A demonstration? Two beings coming together in love could produce and create. It was supposed to replicate and give the universe an idea of how God or the, the um, Trinity works. Linda's been reading my notes, it seems. <laughs> yes, there, in the cosmic context of creation, there was a lot more going on. And we were created as evidence there was a purpose for children other than populating the planet. What is the minimum number of participants required for perfect other-centered love in a relationship? It's three, not two. In a relationship of two, there can be narcissistic reinforcement. Dr. Jennings has talked about this. He sees it in his practice. Where he has marriages, things were fine. Everybody loved everybody until the first child was born. And then the husband becomes jealous and hostile. Once he, the supreme attention and affection of the wife is directed away from him and to the child. So this human family was designed as an object lesson. 
It was designed to illustrate a greater truth. Perhaps to give us some insight into the unity and intimacy of the Trinity. Like Linda said, some understanding of the Godhead and how he governs the universe. Could this be why he created us in his image and then gave us the very godlike trait of coming together in love and giving of ourselves to create new beings in our image? Mrs. White saw it this way. She says, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Did you know that nowhere in her writings does she say the word Trinity? Just FYI. I didn't know that. Now I do. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio in the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who received Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. Here's another quote from Mrs. White that gives us maybe some inspired insight, and she's talking about the child's influence on Enoch. And she says, after the birth of his first son, Enoch reached a higher experience. He was drawn into a closer relationship with God. He realized more fully his own obligations and responsibility as a son of God. And as he saw the child's love for its father, its simple trust in his protection, as he felt the deep yearning tenderness of his own heart for that firstborn son, he learned a precious lesson of the wonderful love of God to men in the gift of his son and the confidence which the children of God may repose in their heavenly father. Isn't that beautiful? And this is the man who kind of knew what he was talking about, walked with God closely enough to be taken up, but his firstborn son gave him that added closeness, that extra insight. Can you parents in the room confirm this? What is your reference? Oh, that was from Adventist Home, page 160. Anyone can confirm this? Did having children change your perce- your perspective, give you some insights into larger realities or some of the cosmic concepts? Especially when they tear out your heart and stomp around on it. Yes. <laughs> you get the better understanding of what we are doing to God. Yes. By our behaviors, you know, God can't, we can't make a child, especially when they get to older ages, we can't make them do what no. we want to do. We can't make them love us or respect us or honor us. We do what we can to help that happen. Sure. But they're ultimately free beings. And no matter what, how good of a parent you try to be, no matter how good of a parent God was, <clears throat> the children can make decisions that are very harmful to the family, to themselves, to other right. people. And it's out of your control, really. And you just have to, uh, I mean, it does give you a greater understanding into God's loss. Yes. And the heartbreak and the burden. It teaches you unconditional love like nothing else can. Yes, exactly. I don't, I mean, I don't think that I can have or imagine that. I have nieces and nephews. I have good friends. I am Aunt Lo to everybody. And I have participated in the guidance of children for sure. But there is, there is insight that I will never have because I'm not a parent. The Zoe. well-being of your child is, is more important almost than your own needs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ideally. 
like Wendell said, we, we see, of course, examples where that switch didn't flip. <laughs> when, you, when you do it like the other center. Yes, exactly. You, you get that love. Yes. These trials that we have with our children that give us the opportunity to learn right. and make a choice right. to have unconditional love. That is a choice. It is. Everything's a choice. And probably all of us in here have dealt with that to some degree or another. And it's not an easy choice. Right. And it's a continual choice. Well, and as we've learned in this class, this is the way your brain physically and otherwise changes is by the practice of the will, the engagement of the will over and over again, choosing, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Um, this is how we get new hearts and right spirits. This is how we, we become new people. Was there another comment? So you learn to put into effect that little phrase, praise the Lord anyhow. <laughs> you know, praise exactly, exactly. Because God is in control. And when you feel you are totally, utterly helpless to save your child. Right. That gives you a glimpse that you would never have the opportunity to experience uh, of the insight into what God experiences, as this gentleman said, yeah. and as Enoch noticed as well. Mm-hmm. So all of this, all that we are allowed to go through, is to help us to grow in our relationship and, and to experience the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Oh, and again, I think that's one of the reasons children were part of the original plan. It was all for our growth, all for our maturity to get us in as close relationship with God as possible. And if we're healthy parents, we try to use discipline as an instructional tool. When when we're recipients of heavenly discipline, we're not as as happy with that. But, it, you know, you can see that God tries desperately all through the Old Testament. I tried this, I tried that. Yes. Say, I'm paraphrasing. I tried the other thing, but yet you wouldn't change your mind. I've done every. I mean, nobody could accuse God of not trying. Exactly. <laughs> not disciplining, not correcting, not instructing, not giving visual examples of what's going to happen to you if you keep right. on this road. And, right. You know, you, you get an idea of... The purpose of discipline, even in our lives from God, that it's it's a tool meant to uh, purify. The, yes, the, uh, and teach and instruct and correct. Mm-hmm. Dis- the root word, disciple. We're going to talk about that, I think, on Wednesday. Yes. I'd like to preface the comment by saying that I do not think that sin was necessary or was a benefit. No. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew that there would be sin. And he created a mechanism by which we could be made whole Mm. and better by his creation. I love that. So, let's talk about, again, Linda, leading me into my next point. We have an example here. And some of you know uh, Stephanie Land. She comes to this class. She's Dr. Jennings' daughter-in-law. And she is the mother of his grandchildren, Lennox and Dexter. And we were trying to work it out for her to teach this week. (laughs) Since her credibility as the mother of a four and a six-year-old is infinitely higher than mine on this subject, 
But ironically, she's off being a parent because Lenox School is taking part in the church service at Standard for Gap this morning. But she was kind enough to share with me some of the material that she had uh, worked on when she was preparing. And she shared this profound insight. She talks about parenting is a huge lesson in self-sacrifice. And I think that's one of the reasons it's such a gift from God. We see love in a whole new light when it comes to our children, especially when it comes to understanding God in the Old Testament. Story after story, we see the children of Israel rebelling against their heavenly parent, God. And like any loving parent, God simply wants the best for his children. After all, doesn't he know what's best? So last summer, my daughter Lennox had a very tiny tick embedded on the side of her neck. An important side note is that a few months prior, we had found a large grown tick on her scalp hidden by her hair, one that had attached and become a little bulbous. By the time we noticed it, it had dug deep into her scalp, and the removal of the tick caused her much pain as a small chunk of her skin came up along with the tick. So to be fair, Lennox had a reason to fear the pain that removing a tick can cause. However, Michael, who's her husband, and I tried and tried to explain to her that this tick was much smaller and it wouldn't be painful like before. She didn't believe us. She wouldn't let us get anywhere near her neck. Several times Lennox would say, okay, then she would let us, that she would let us get the tick. But as soon as our fingers got close to her neck, she'd wince away. She would not stay still enough for us to successfully remove the tick. No matter how much we tried to reason with Lennox, her fear took over. Her fear kept her from trusting us. Her six-year-old mind didn't understand that a tick needed to be removed. She didn't understand that the longer the tick stayed in her skin, the greater risk of catching a tick-borne disease. She didn't understand that if she was not perfectly still, allowing us to carefully remove the entire tick, then the head could get stuck inside and cause a possible infection. She didn't understand the laws governing her health and that her parents were simply trying to bring her back into harmony with those laws. Are you starting to see any correlation between this story and the children of Israel or modern day Israel, which is us? We spent hours trying to reason with Lennox, trying to get her to cooperate and obey. The fight was exhausting and draining. Lennox's inability to trust us was heartbreaking. When reason didn't work, we threatened. We told her that if we didn't get the tick off, we would have to leave the fun activity we were doing. We tried bribery. We tried a stern tone. None of it worked. Tried duct tape. (laughs) We tried holding her down with force, but her constant flailing around proved to be a challenge also. She cried. I cried. It was an all-around challenging experience. But at the same time, all I could think about was, is this how God feels when we don't trust him? Do we believe that God knows what's best? Do we understand that God wants us to obey because his laws are the basis for life and he wants to free us from the dangerous, unhealthy oppression of the law of sin and death? Michael and I knew better than our six-year-old. God knew better than the children of Israel. Michael and I wanted to protect Lennox from possible disease or infection. God wanted to protect the children of Israel from destructive practices that took him further away from harmony with his design for life. God knows better. The question is, do we trust him? 
or will we allow fear to take over? Fear inhibits our ability to trust. Even though Lennox usually trusts us, her fear of pain completely dominated her ability to trust us in this situation. It's pretty good insight. We're still going to get her to teach because I think she'd be amazing. Whether she knows it or not, she's still going to teach. <laughs> Remember last week, we talked about some core principles that result in healthy families or unity in families. And this one was key. It was the willingness to tolerate the pain that a loved one will experience as they make choices on their own. In other words, not being overly protective or overly rescuing when mistakes are made or applying appropriate discipline to educate and teach or offering healing interventions when necessary that might also be painful. And how do we know the difference? How do we know when to not rescue, when to intervene? To me, this is the most difficult struggle. Praying for godly wisdom. Exactly. Every day. I don't know. I don't know of another way. But even even in that, you have to remember that God's time is not our time. Correct. And when we think we've been praying for something for years and never see a change, we have to remember. Well, you know. It's not our time, it's God's time. Right. Linda. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am um, of course it's highly individualized. Of course. But when you're when you're dealing with um, say family and so on, um, sometimes you have to let the punishment occur because if it doesn't the chances of the, of the mistake or the issue being replicated over and over and over again are very high. Are high. And so if you see that there's, their trajectory is still going down and not going up, sometimes you have to let the bottom of the barrel come, mm-hmm. even though it kills your heart to let yes. that happen. You have to stand back and let the result happen, because until that total result happens, a lot of times people will not... I'm talking about kids, but also adults. Adults, yeah. Won't change the trajectory of the decisions they're making because they haven't felt the full force of mm-hmm. consequence. Yeah. And that's just an individual thing, but a lot of the times you can look over the pattern and say, you know, if I keep doing this, rescuing and yeah. there is there's nothing but down going this way. No learning going on. You have to step back and let yeah. consequences happen or create consequences. Yeah. And I mean, don't we see that? We see that in God's interaction with us, that sometimes there's intervention. And sometimes, I mean, Dr. Jennings says he wants us to get caught. He knows that our behavior, if we're in destructive behavior, he knows it's damaging to us. And getting caught might be just the trigger that helps us turn around. But he's God. (laughs) So he knows exactly when to intervene and when not to intervene. We as parents, like she said, we all I know to do is is pray for that for that insight. Um, and something, I mean, I, I'd probably take a little bit exception to what was said over there about God being in control, because we often interpret that. Hearing that, yeah. we often will interpret it meaning God controls all of us all the time, right. which is pretty clear He doesn't. Right. He gives us powers, creativities. Um, and choice abilities, but he steps back a lot of times and lets, he doesn't, 
He doesn't prevent your child from being run over by a drug, drug driver. The drug driver made a decision yeah. to drink and then ran over your child. That was not God's plan sure. for your child. God wasn't in control of the man's behavior. Otherwise, we would be puppets. Mm-hmm. We would, and, and it, you know, it would seem like a great thing because he would make everybody behave. Yeah. But then he would lose the ability. We would lose the ability to love him because we'd be controlled by him. He's in control of himself yeah. and how he will respond to certain situations. And he brings up things, the Bible says, rulers and down, other other ones and so on. He creates interventions. Mm-hmm. But part of freedom is the ability to love, but also the ability to make uh, wrong choices. And yeah. work God's will for you or for anybody you damaged or anything. And so in, in one instance, in my case... <clears throat> Teenage years for my kids, and one of them particularly was rough. And at one point, she didn't talk to me for two years. So I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And all I could do, not being in control of her decisions, is I could write her a letter. This was suggested by my counselor at the time. Write her a letter and say, I can see that you don't feel like talking to me. But just know that I will always be here should you change your mind. Mm -hmm. I'm always... The thing is to, the temptation is to retaliate. When someone treats right. you a certain way, well, then fine. Or reject. <laughs> you know, well, then I won't do this. Mm-hmm. You know? So the, the thing is to say, I'm still the same person. No matter how you behave, I'm going to love you. I'll be here when you're ready. Right. You know, don't be afraid to talk to me, essentially. I will be here. I still love you. I respect your decision to do whatever you need to do, but just understand I'll be here when you're ready to talk to me. Yeah. And so we're friends now, but I mean, it was a hard two years. <laughs> I, I mean, again, I'll repeat this all day today. I can't imagine what that's like. Joelle. I think the hard part is all children are different. And we all know as parents, we all make mistakes. There's probably nothing we work harder at right. than parenting in our lives. But I don't know of a parent who is truly facing realities and honest who doesn't say, you know, if I could do it again knowing what I know now, <laughs> you know, I think that's that's personal growth in all of us. For sure. And every child is different. Every circumstance is different. So it's never one size fits all. Right. And we try to apply that. but And it's so easy to say to someone else, for one person to say to another person, well, this is what you should do with your child. And they really can't do that. It, no idea. It, does not, it is not one size fits all. But I think the bottom line is we can't trust God with our children if we cannot, if we believe that he's going to love them if they do what he desires for them, but he's going to kill them if they don't. Right. How, as a parent, could you trust God if you believed that's how he operates? It totally changes everything yep. when you see God differently. Then is when you can place your children in his hands mm-hmm. and uh, trust that he is there 
for them and for you. Right. So how many of you in my age range, which is, which is? middle, <laughs> middle-aged, <laughs> wish that you had known what you know now about natural and design law when you were developing relationships and raising your children? I mean, how fortunate for the childbearing age that are hearing this message and get to start out with those concepts. I mean, it has to make a huge difference. What else? There was another comment. Can we please ask Zoe, the other grand, the one of the, the Stephanie Land's mother, because everybody's going to know how they get the tick out. Oh. <laughs> they, they actually stepped back. They were all exhausted. They let it rest, and they slept overnight. And the next day brought new mercies <laughs> every morning, and they did manage to get the tick off. <laughs> Which is also, I think, some good advice <laughs> sometimes. And, I mean, we, have, we only have about ten minutes left. I wonder... You know, he went out, left, with his father's goods, you know, his portion, did his thing, ruined it all, decided to come back. Father didn't run after him. The father waited for him to learn his lesson. Right. And be willing to come back. But the most interesting thing, that's the obvious part of that story, but the most interesting thing is the father went out to meet him as he was coming back. I'm still the same. Yes. But he also went out after the other brother. Right. We, we forget the other one who I slaved for you all yes. years. Because a lot of people who did exactly what I was supposed to do. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't do awful things. They slaved for their father in heaven, blah, blah, blah. And yet, and then they get jealous because this person with this horrible lifestyle came in and was loved and all this and forgiven, had a joyous experience, but they slaved for their father all these years. Yeah. And I find it really interesting that the father did go out after that son. Yeah. He didn't go out after he, he came to greet the other stuff, but he actually went out to get the other stuff. Yeah. Who was saying, you know, you don't even make a party for my friends. I've slaved for you all these years. You know, and I, I find the father's response to this two sons who he both welcomed back or tried to get back, but he had a different method for each son. And that we often forget the ones who remained in church and be right. behaved, you know, right. might be sitting there resentfully behaved. That the father goes out after two. That's some good insight. So we have Thursday's lesson talks about fighting for your prodigal child. I'm trying to figure out if we should go there. I I definitely want to skip. Let's skip to um, Tuesday's lesson, which talks about the joy and responsibility of parenting. And we've touched on a little bit of this, but the lesson describes the process of making your favorite dish. You follow a recipe. You add all the required ingredients. You follow all the instructions. This author has obviously never been in my kitchen. But they say most of the time you get the desired results. And then it says parenting is not like cooking. Why? What are parents and educators responsible for? Free choice. Their own conduct. We're responsible for our conduct in parenting and educating. But are parents and educators responsible for their children's outcomes? And this is such a tough concept. 
What is probably the most well-known, popular, common-used, and perhaps misused Bible text about parenting and child-rearing? Of course, it's Proverbs 22.6. In traditional translations, it reads, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We've discussed some of the possible translations or interpretations in this class, but what really surprised me is that the teacher's quarterly delved into some of these other options in depth. It says Proverbs 22.6 is a rare verse possessing just the right amount of translational ambiguity and theological consequence to produce either existential hope or psychological trauma, or both. It is an exegetically juicy bit of Old Testament wisdom literature whose potential English translations can be virtual opposites of each other. Studying this verse can serve as a microcosm for the challenge, thrill, and surprise that makes deeper Bible study all worth it. No matter how one translates this text, it does not mean that every wayward child is the direct result of bad parenting. This is obvious when we look at Lucifer and Adam, who had perfect parents. So this verse should be taken as a general principle about how experiences in earlier years can have long-term consequences. The Hebrew in this text reads only according to his way, but has traditionally been interpreted as in the way he should go. There is also some disagreement on the Hebrew word nar, I think. It's N-A apostrophe A-R, which has traditionally been translated as child, but may instead refer to an unmarried young adult, which means the text would involve adolescents or teenagers rather than toddlers, and would read, train an adolescent in his own way, and when he is old he will not depart from it. The text is now understood as a promise Not that good parenting guarantees good results, but that lax parenting that caters to the teenager's undisciplined way will have long-term serious results. Which seems like the more accurate in regard to actual outcome promises? Which interpretation? The second one. When God raised Lucifer and Adam, there were no mistakes. He did everything perfectly. And if the first translation were true, then God would be responsible for failing to parent Lucifer and Adam correctly. But this is not the case. It is a proverb telling us that if we fail to do any job, let the child be in charge of its rearing. It will grow up self-centered, self-indulged, narcissistic, and will not depart from it. However, the traditional interpretation can be used to teach a general principle that good outcomes are enhanced by good investments, but such good investments do not guarantee good outcomes. Yes, Brian. Another interpretation that I've heard is train up a child according to his bent. Down to not trying to force the will. Right. Force them against their uh, aptitudes. Yes. Whatever. It could even come down to aptitudes. And I have a little bit of a problem with the statement that you just read there uh, because I think from many Christian perspectives that could easily be interpreted very authoritatively as if, if 
I just command everything and they don't turn out, that it's not my responsibility. Sure. See, that can be taken very easily mm-hmm. to a very unhealthy place. Yep. This is a quote that we read last week. I thought it was profound. And it said, the training of children must be conducted on a different principle from that which governs the training of irrational animals, which is what you were saying with with the bit. The brute has only to be accustomed to submit to its master, but the child must be taught to control himself. The will must be trained to obey the dictates of reason and conscience. A child may be so disciplined as to have, like the beast, no will of its own, his individuality being lost in that of his teacher. Such training is unwise, and its effect disastrous. Have any of us seen the disastrous effects of this? I have. Daily. Children thus educated will be deficient in firmness and decision. They are not taught to act from principle. The reasoning powers are not strengthened by exercise. Is that a law? Law of exertion? So far as possible, every child should be trained to self-reliance. By calling into exercise the various faculties, he will learn where he is strongest and in what he is deficient. A wise instructor will give special attention to the development of the weaker traits, and the child may form a well-balanced, harmonious character. Yes? What I have experience with the raising my children where you know there are times when as a parent you're just in a dilemma mm-hmm. you've done everything you know trying to follow the counsel that yep. you've been given and you see things happen um, that you would never expect yep. to happen and then you're just at a loss now how do I deal with this if I do this is it going to make him rebellious and, and push away from God and his training, or if I do this, is it going to draw him closer? Yep. Um, and then what, with a lot of prayer, just came to my mind, is every decision that you make and every decision that your child makes boils down to a very simple answer in perspective with the great controversy. Is it going to draw them closer to the Lord? Is it going to push them away from the Lord? Is it going to draw, you know, and and yes, they have a choice. So I saw my responsibility to show my children the same thing, mm-hmm. that every choice they make is going to do just that. And there is a real battle going on right. in their soul. Right. And yes, you may make the wrong choices, but along with responsibility comes consequences, mm-hmm. you know, and choices come consequences. And that, as deeply as it hurts when they make the wrong choice, at least I know that they know that there is a great controversy going right. on and a battle for their soul. And I just pray that somehow they will listen to the Holy Spirit and sure. to Him, fully surrendered. And that's all we can do as a and when things go wrong, people always blame God. They sure. Never mention that. It's always God yeah. that did something wrong or God failed. And that's just um, a very, um, uh, it's sad that children are not brought up to realize that they are accountable for their choices. Yeah. 
Agreed. There are consequences. Well, I, I want to add one of the most kind things God did for me was to show me that I'm only one tool in his toolbox. Exactly. God, God is infinite. He uses every tool at his disposal. He's very creative in how he disciplines and works things. I have to trust that I'm only one of his tools. I may be a flawed tool, even. No offense. <laughs> and, and also, the other point I wanted to make is sometimes a parent has made woeful decisions. And a child sees that and maybe responds badly to it. But a parent can also show recovery yes. from the situation. And growth and healing. Can apologize, can show change. And that being that transition being witnessed by a child can also be very beneficial. Exactly. Even if you're not a perfect being, they can see that imperfect being being changed by God. Yes. Wendell. Your, your quote that you just quoted talks about the development of independent individual. Self-reliant. The, um, you know, we've said it here before, but the final gift of the spirit that is listed is self-control. It's not being controlled by God to be a robot. Right. Self-control. And we are told that you learn by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. So for sure, if a child has not been given the responsibility for discerning, and maybe sometimes discerning wrongly, right from wrong, then that skill is never developed. It requires the practice. It requires the law of exertion. To, just for something to go stronger, you have to exercise it. Um, so Thursday's lesson, oh, we're, we're close to time, was talking about fighting for your prodigal child, which I know has to be the burden of almost every parent at some point or another. There's been, I mean, we're all prodigals. We're all God's prodigals for sure. But my only experience, again, from from my side is from the child's perspective on this subject because my parents had a couple of little prodigals um, in in some ways, shapes and forms for sure. But, I mean, I know I know that I did... Lots of things that my parents didn't expect and that disappointed them um, from leaving home to marrying outside my faith to getting divorced to being outside of the church for about 20 years. Um, but I also know that I had some praying parents and I know I had parents that that did not pressure that did not want for me what I was choosing for myself, but did not pressure and just stayed in the trenches. Um, but I didn't really know what that looked like until now. Now that I am, uh, again, Aunt Low, I'm involved in my friends all have children of a certain age. We get together almost every week. We pray a circle around our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews. And so... Just by seeing that, I have some insight into what that looked like when my parents were burdening for, for my brother and me. Anyway, so we know that God will not violate freedom, the freedom of a child. And we know that we really wouldn't want him to because of what that would say about him. So the question is, what do you pray for? And what we have, have practiced is we pray for 
discernment. We pray for the lies and the distortions to be removed so that they can make accurate decisions, knowing truth, being presented with truth. Um, We pray for protection, their physical protection, so that while they are trying to determine what's right and what's wrong, that they would be physically protected until the point where they can make those good decisions. Um, we pray for, um, we pray that either substances or destructive behaviors would be, would make them miserable, would become unattractive to them so that when they practice it, it's, it's not something that they enjoy. And we also pray, again, I think that this is the most important thing. We are disciple makers, we are teachers, we are instructors, and we cannot teach and instruct something that we don't contain ourselves. So we pray for the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would worship a God of love, a God who is our creator, our designer, because we know when we worship him, we become like him. And we know that that God is attractive and magnetic. And he draws all to him. So if we can be that example, that's something that can draw them back. One more comment. The encouragement that I've always had, and I've tried to share this with other parents, is, is as much as I love my children, and I would do anything to see them saved, God loves them infinitely more. And he will do in his power and his knowledge and his strength everything the eternal God can do to save yep. children. And if they choose to not be saved, then... There's nothing more. In love, he will let them go. In love. That gives me more hope and more courage than anything I can do. And just being able to surrender my children to my God is such a comfort to me. Thank you. Thank you for participating. Let's close with prayer. Father, uh, thank you for the gift of children, for the gift of this insight into just some of the love that you have for us. It's more than we can fathom. Um, again, we pray for, oh, we pray for your insight, your wisdom as we serve our children, as we pray for our children, as we teach our children. Um, and we pray that you would, you would touch their hearts, you would touch their souls, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out onto them, um, so that they can also serve in, uh, bringing about your kingdom. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.